the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back as we hit into our third hour. you got to think about conservatism a little bit in Arizona. You think about what Arizona has contributed to the conservative movement, and it's rather large. It's a rather, rather large constellation when you think of Barry Goldwater or uh, Supreme Court Justice and Chief Justice William Rehnquist, great senators like John Kyle. But you got to think about our current delegation, too, and where the conservative movement, where the country would be. Without it, the people we have on here regularly, not the least of which one of my favorite people, though he blanches at that because he wants better company than me, is our representative from the 6th Congressional <laughs> District, David Schweikert. Yeah, I just wish my wife wouldn't say the same thing. <laughs> Hello, David. How are you? <laughs> uh, oh, and you get a kick out of this. Um, you know, I'm sitting in a little room right on the side of our Freedom Caucus dinner Yeah, where we're here trying to figure out how we're going to save the country with this insane Congress we're dealing with right now. Well, you gave a hell of a speech on the floor of the House about the stimulus bill. I'm going to ask you to reprise for our audience in just a moment. But before we do, I have to ask you the very serious question. We got off on a tangent earlier. We had Bernovich. Yes, no, we- I have not taken up heavy drinks. Okay. <laughs> Reminds me of what I've Sinatra. Been thinking about it. But, <laughs> Sinatra um, once said, I don't drink a lot, but I don't drink a little either. Uh, yeah, no, no. I come from a long line of 12-steppers. Uh, oh, good. That, that's a great program. That I, I love that program. I'd like to buy the world a 12-step program. David, um, Brnovich was on, and you know he's a grateful dead guy. Who's your favorite band? What kind of music do you like? I'm curious to know. In all our conversations, oh, we've never brought up yeah, music. I, I, yeah, I'm going to lose a lot of those people who are kind to me. Um, I'm actually very much a sort of a product of the early 80s. So um, I today I'm a fan of sort of down tempo electronic music. So you gave this great speech on the stimulus bill on the floor of the House of Representatives, David, and uh, that was a transition. That was called. The, yes. Okay. That was a, I yeah. just figured you didn't want. To <laughs> I'm trying to save your today. career. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. 1.9. The thing you did that was so good, and we had a caller on this earlier. The press is comparing the stimulus to the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, and you said your friends on the left got to go back to school. Talk talk to us about this. This is great what you said. It's great. Here's a simple concept. Let's say you have a piece of legislation that costs $1.9 trillion, and the Republicans have a tax reform bill that costs $1.9 trillion. Ten years from now, who's... Is your life better with the Democrat bill or the Republican bill? The Democrat bill is going to send you some money, then send a boatload, multiples of multiples of multiples of what you get of money to teachers' unions, to public employee unions, to special projects, and pile on the debt. On the other side, you could reform the tax system that gives you lower taxes but also encourages your business and your economy to become more productive, to pay you more. Your labor becomes more valuable. Mm-hmm. And 10 years from now, you've had a pay hike on a pay hike on a pay hike 
on a pay hike on a pay hike, yep. the entire society is wealthier and more prosperous yep. because you made the society something where we invest yep. in the things that make us productive. Yep. The other just buys both. And and as you point out, I, and well, it's it's a very temporary thing with the long term pain. Whereas the tax cuts and jobs act was both a temporary gain and a long term gain. If it's not a race, yeah. that's what I worry about. This administration, I worry about them erasing a lot of gains. We could talk about the border, oh, but yeah. we can talk about our you know our our, well, our growth. Well, a bit of, a bit of trivia. If you, yeah. you know, unlike the Democrats who lie, like they can't, they just cannot stop lying about the tax reform. Um, Nancy Pelosi and I went at it the, a couple weeks ago on the floor. She got up and said, 83% of the tax reform went to rich people. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. That's an absolute lie. What happens is when the tax reform fades out because the number of things expire on the very, 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 very last few days when everything else has expired, some of the tax cuts that are remaining that haven't finished phasing out are for very high incomers on accounting but, issues on accounting yeah, issues. It's just, yeah, it's just it's a timing, right. but it's a willingness to lie like that over and over. But she also assumes and, that we have no institutional memory because the Democrats just jump from lily pad to lily pad, don't they? Her first complaint was that it was crumbs. If it were crumbs, she wouldn't care that it went to the wealthy. It it, it, it's, it, it doesn't matter. No, it's all about the accumulation of power. Right. So if I come to you and say I passionately care about the working poor. And can demonstrate that the first time in closed income inequality, you know, the difference between really rich people and the working poor was 2018 and 2019 because of tax reform, because of limiting low-skill immigration, and because of dealing with just crazy regulations and them more rational. Doing those things made an economy that was desirous of your labor, mm-hmm. and it made your labor more valuable, mm-hmm. meaning your income went up, yep. and then your income would go up the next year, yep. and income would go up the next year. Yep. And after a couple of years, you were no longer part of the working poor. You had moved into the middle class. What the Democrats are about to do is they're going to send everyone, if you're under, what, 75000 a check, and you're going to be happy about the check, and you're going to maybe save some of it, maybe even invest a little bit but a year from now, you're not getting another check. That's right. Your That's salary right. didn't go up. That's right. You're now going to have to try to find a way to pay back the debt because for every thousand they send you, they want five thousand dollars in some sort of expenditure um, or new taxes to cover it. What makes society better? Giving you something today or making it so your life is dramatically better and the entire country is dramatically better and What's so just filthy frustrating is the Democrats are willing to argue saying, hey, giving some people a check today gives us political power, and that's ultimately all they care about. Are you, um, like me, a little worried about this $1.9 trillion um, spending, and this is before we even have our annual budget debate? Um, it, it, it's more than that. Um, there's all sorts of other things that you, you get into that that get a little thick, a little geeky. But in January, U.S. ten-year sovereign, so the ten-year T-bill, yep. was nine or point nine one. Yep. Today it closed at what um, one point five four something of like that. So it's sixty basis points higher. So 
Well, it turns out that six-tenths of one percent of interest may not seem like a big deal to you, but when you're going to finance either finance or refinance $10 trillion just this year, that's the real cost of this piece of legislation. Because it's not only you have to finance the $1.9 trillion, yep. it's effect on the entire interest rate market because you went and borrowed you know, that couple trillion out of the market. If you raise interest rates for everyone, for everyone's mortgage and car loan and this and that, but you also raised interest rates because you took that much money out of the um, lendable economy, you also raised it on everything else in U.S. debt markets. And so the real cost of this legislation it's phenomenally high. So today is a big loss uh, for the country. Uh, but let me ask you this, a sense of optimism in a sense, unless you think I don't have cause for it, David, and maybe it's the wrong day to do this. But as much as you lament what's going on in Congress and you opened up the conversation uh, with it that way, I think it's also fair or true to say that you've probably never had more colleagues who agree with the sentiments that you express than you do right now. Is that fair to say about our Republican Congress right now? Not everyone, and not the majority, but more than you've had before. It's a better bench is what I'm trying to ask you. The Republicans, even with our differences, yeah. because the fact of the matter is, if you're a congressman and a Republican from rural Appalachia, you see the world different than maybe I do from being from, you know, suburban North Phoenix. Yeah. Um. But the basic principles are the basic principles. Yeah. And we know the left has given up principles. They basically have you so decided they fully adopt a radical agenda. Today's Democrat Party is not the same Democrat Party from even a few years ago. Barack Obama's almost a moderate. Yeah, I, I take the point. Compared to this party, it's hard for people to get their heads around. You know, I, I have neighbors that are wonderful people. They, they talk to me all the time. They're Democrats. Yep. And they can't stand the modern Democrat Party. They believe the party has just radicalized. Oh, it's an irony of the times that the moderate vice president in the Biden administration has become the more progressive president than, than excuse me, in the Obama administration has become the more, the more progressive president uh, than Obama was. It's, 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 well, it's a terrible were, pull from the Democratic the Party. If he were the one actually setting the policy. Yeah, that's a fair point, too. That's another – we'll discuss that next week, perhaps. Sh- David Schweiker, thanks for your time. Hey, do me a favor and say hi to the people at the Freedom Caucus for me. I love that group. Well, Jim Jordan's sitting right across from me, so I will say tell, hi to everyone. Tell Jordan and Biggs I said hi. Uh, it is done. God bless bye you, now. sir. Talk to you soon. 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Now, Bill, my producer, puts his finger in the air and nods knowingly, telling me he understands a problem that we both recognized without speaking about and that it will never happen again. Is that what I read your semaphore to mean? Well, it may happen again sometime, but that was the, yes, I added a song, and that's why this one repeated. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's all right. That's all right. You know what I was thinking about after the Schweikert uh, discussion I just – David Schweikert discussion I just had? He said he was at a, a dinner with the Freedom Caucus. I don't know if you remember about three, four years ago, 
The Freedom Caucus was held in high disregard, disrepute. People would go around and say things like Republicans. A lot of Republicans would go around and say things like, well, you don't support the Freedom Caucus, do you? I think at the time it was headed by Mark Meadows, who later became Obama's uh, – excuse me, Obama's. I think it was headed by Mark Meadows, who later became Donald Trump's chief of staff. And then once he did that, he was succeeded by Andy Biggs, who's now the chairman of it. You know what you don't hear Republicans saying anymore? Disparaging things about the Freedom Caucus. They saw something. They saw something. And they took something and go through this ongoing discussion of – whether they represent the better part of the Republican Party or the conservative movement or not. But I can't see what they don't represent from the better part of the Republican Party or the conservative movement. Hugh Hallman and I were having a little bit, just beginning to get into a debate yesterday, a little bit, a little bit, about uh, what conservatism uh, has come to mean. And he maintains, I think, if I'm being fair to him, we can resume this discussion next week. He maintains that um, it's changed a bit or a lot. Either way, he, I'll let him uh, detail it. I maintain that it's refound its roots. Um, that having been said, thank God for the Freedom Caucus, I say. And you just interestingly don't hear Republicans saying disparaging things about it anymore. It's become the, um, it's become the lifeline for saving what common sense we can muster. That's the word for it, muster, in the House of Representatives. Not funny. Nancy Pelosi disparages or, 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 or um, um, condemns the Tax Cut and Jobs Act because it only gave crumbs to Americans and then comes around a few years later to say 80% of it went to the wealthy. She doesn't have to, as Democrats don't have to, land on a co- cohesive argument. They can jump lily pad to lily pad like for whatever harbor works in a storm. It's why she can say people will do what people will do when asked about a riot in Baltimore to then turn Washington, D.C. into a garrison state with concertina wire and National Guard because there was a riot in Washington, D.C., not Baltimore. That would affect her safety because she doesn't care about the people of Baltimore's safety or the people of Minneapolis's safety, or the people of El Paso's safety, or the people of Phoenix's safety. People forget we had a riot here. People forget in Scottsdale. I remember how scared some people were about it one weekend. It was bad. They had to bring in police from other cities. They had to bring in police units from other cities. It was bad. People forget it, but we did better than other, other places. Over at Issues and Insights, just a week ago, the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas denied that there was a crisis at the southern border. He said, quote, the answer is no, close quote, when answering a reporter's question. He said, I think there's a challenge and that we're managing it. That was a week ago. It's a week ago. The very next day, the administration officials who work at Homeland Security informed President Biden 
that the number of migrant children in the U.S. is on pace to beat the previous record by almost 50 percent and that there aren't enough beds to accommodate them. Did you see AOC storm down to the border and cry tears over the children being put in, not cages after all, but detention facilities? It's the same thing. It's a new word. You say detention facility and you don't have to go down to the border and cry about it. If you call it a cage, then you have to go down and cry about it. I saw the pictures on the news this morning and on, C- uh, and on uh, CBS. CBS did a story on it. They looked like cages to me. They looked like cages. Did I send you the audio of it? I may or may not have. The Nora O'Donnell report on it? I may not have. We'll do it tomorrow maybe. They look like cages. No one's going down and crying. Monday of this week, Mayorkas, DHS secretary, started pleading for volunteers to help border protection cope with the overwhelming surge of illegal border crossers. Your colleagues need assistance, he said. Does that give you comfort? DHS needs volunteers now to help? I remember when it was a bad idea to have volunteers protecting the border. I'm old enough to remember that. Last month alone, Border Patrol agents had 78,323 encounters with illegal border crossers, which is higher than any January in 10 years. In the three months since Joe Biden won the election, these encounters have totaled 224,337, which is 87%, almost 90% higher than a year ago, than the same three months a year ago. 100,000 more encounters in February. NBC News says that a record number of unaccompanied migrant children are being held in, quote, facilities meant for adults. (laughs) They don't use the word cages. Just facilities meant for adults. Customs and Border Patrol holding cells, as NBC calls them, also known as ice boxes, are not designed for children. They are typically small concrete rooms with concrete or metal benches and no beds. Now, if you were going to describe a jail cell or a cage, might you say it was a small concrete room with concrete or metal benches and no beds? Sounds like a cage to me. Yet Joe Biden won't explain why the surge is happening, much less take responsibility for it. He won't even admit there's a problem. Last week, reporter asked Biden, did you receive a briefing about the border day? And he said, yes, I did. And the reporter said, what did you learn? And Biden said a lot and walked off stage. We all saw it. He thinks he's cute. A lot. Thanks. He thinks he's cute. Or smart or cleverer than the rest of us. He's not. He's not. Jen Psaki is saying it is a heartbreaking circumstance at the border, as if they have nothing to do with it, just passively, oh, it's heartbreaking. You know what they can't do? They can try a lot to blame. They can try and blame a lot on Donald Trump. They can't blame this one on him because everyone knows Trump had the border controlled. And these numbers, 50% higher, 100% higher than last year, There's a reason for that, and it ain't Trump. They made this crisis. They need to own it. They need to fix it.
a listener is emailing me about people who do have uh, scrutable or articula- articulate lyric ability in their singing. Uh, there is a right answer as to the person who is the most articulate enunciator of lyrics. It's not Rick Ocasek, as we were just hearing, but Rick's pretty good. You can understand what Rick's saying, can't you? Was saying. He passed away, unfortunately, a few years ago, sadly, right? I think a little too young. Or not as young as we thought, maybe. Rick Ocasek may have been older than we thought. He married younger. That's what the confusion was. Before looking that up, oh, it is young. Yeah, that was young. Liver damage or something, was it? Something like that? In any event, uh, here's the CBS report from last night. Um, even a uh, even a blind uh, mice can, mouse can find a, uh, an acorn once in a while. Listen to Nora O'Donnell. Now to some breaking news from the southern border. A record number of migrant children are in Border Patrol custody, and shelter beds are scarce, raising fears of a new crisis at the border. The growing number of unaccompanied minors has raised alarm bells in the Biden administration. We get more now from CBS's Maria Vidal. CBS News tonight has learned there are more than 3,200 unaccompanied migrant children in customs and border protection custody, a total that has nearly tripled in the last two weeks. Government data obtained by CBS News also shows U.S. shelters received more than 7,000 migrant children last month, with another 1,500 new arrivals in the first four days of March alone, posing a huge challenge for the new Biden administration. This massive influx is further straining a system already near capacity. The government has been forced to reopen shelters for minors in places like Homestead, Florida and Carrizo Springs, Texas. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and White House Domestic Policy Advisor Susan Rice were at the border over the weekend to survey facilities for minors. (laughs) Among those held... 15-year-old Jacqueline, who was reunited with her mother Miriam in Los Angeles today after three weeks in a government facility. Wow. Her mother, who has a work permit, crossed into the U.S. more than three years ago. I'm very happy and emotional, she said, because I can finally have her with me, and I'm so thankful to God she's okay. Jacqueline told us she was cold while being held by Border Patrol with a blanket made of foil. Every day there were more and more kids that were coming to the border by themselves. For now, these children are being held in facilities that are managed by Customs and Border Protection, but they are meant for adults. We know that several federal agencies right now are working together on this issue. And late this afternoon, CBS News got a statement from the Office of Refugee and Resettlement that says, in part, they are looking at several options for long-term and short-term solutions that will help safely take care of these children. How about stop bringing them here? How about stop magnetizing? How about stop pulling? They created a problem to solve a problem. The problem they were trying to solve was called Trump. They created a problem because Trump wasn't wrong. And if you look at this story on Twitter the way I got it, I don't know. Someone must have retweeted it because I don't follow Nora O'Donnell. Who retweeted it? Someone. Anyway, you look at the comments under it. They're all liberal comments. They're all liberal commentators, lefties. I know this because I've looked up some of them. And this is a very standard response to that story. Replying to Nora O'Donnell and Joe Biden, and at Kamala Harris, and at Speaker Pelosi, and at Senator Schumer, from one Dan Sherman. As an active member of your party, it is impossible to understate what an appalling betrayal this is. 
how you could survive four years of Trump's incredulousness only to commit deeper evils than him is beyond my comprehension. That's correct. I don't know if, 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 if evil is the right word here or not, but that's an honest liberal right there. That's an honest liberal. When you cancel Donald Trump's construction of the border wall and you you jettison the remain in Mexico policy and you suspend the requirement that asylum seekers who traverse another country before reaching the U.S. have to stay in that country or in Mexico, or if you take away from border agents the ability to remove illegals in order to prevent further spread of COVID-19, or if you restore catch and release and a 100-day pause on deportations, you've caused this problem. This is not a crisis the Biden administration has to deal with. It's a crisis the Biden administration caused and now has to deal with. A bunch of you asked over the break if I could recite what it was the Biden administration did that changed the dynamic at the border, of course. Joe Biden canceled the construction, the additional construction of the border wall. He jettisoned Trump's successful remain in Mexico policy that required asylum seekers caught in the U.S. to wait in Mexico while their cases were adjudicated. He suspended Donald Trump's requirement that asylum seekers who traverse another country before reaching the U.S. had to seek asylum in that country first. Biden stopped using the federal law, which gave border agents the ability to immediately remove illegal aliens in order to prevent the spread of COVID. He announced a one, Biden did, he announced a 100-day pause on deportation, then issued new rules that crippled the ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency's ability to arrest and deport illegals. And all in all, constitutes the most sweeping amnesty for illegals. And why would you put a 100-day pause on for everyone? Why? Who's illegal? Why? Why do that? Why send the message? There was a documentarian on Prager's show earlier today um, who did a documentary on illegal immigration and the border crisis. And she set out to first report and antipathetically, disagreeably with the Trump policies. And when she went in and did her research and infused herself into some of the cartel's groups to get her research done over the last three months, she reported that coyote organizations and cartels were delighted with, delighted with the Biden policy. It made their work easier. She also found that the vast majority of those coming through claiming asylum are not asylum seekers in the humanitarian sense that you think of as asylum. They're economic seekers, seeking economic betterment. 
Which is why I also agree with Dennis. I think he said this again today, perhaps in that interview. I said it with uh, Mark Bernovich earlier. I, I, I do not blame them for that. I do not blame people who want to come to the United States. I do not blame people who think they will better their lot here. I blame the government for giving them the false hope that it's okay to do it that way. I blame the government who I think unconstitutionally grants illegals benefits through executive order and not legislation because they can't get it through legislation, ordinary legislation, only so that these illegal immigrants once here become pawns in political games. I blame the government that does that for that. I don't blame people for seeing America as a great country they'd want to live in at all. I blame lefties in this country for denigrating this country. But it also shows you how wrong they are because I think it takes a lot more energy and initiative and brain power and willpower to get up and leave your country for another country. It takes a lot. I can't fathom it. I can't fathom it. It doesn't take much to stand up and look at the pockmarks of our history and say we're a rotten country. That takes no willpower. That takes no difficulty. All you have to do is be an idiot or a liar. You either have to be miseducated or a liar in the name of a progressive cause, Marxism usually. That takes no effort. It takes effort, willpower, and brain power to move here, legally or illegally. That's why I give a little more credence, just a little bit more credence, frankly, to illegal aliens or immigrants who move here, leaving everything behind because they want a better life than I do to progressives in this country who have the best life they could ever have and denounce this country. It's why I think even illegal immigrants, and I'm not talking about the criminals, obviously, and I'm not talking about the cartel organizations, obviously. I'm talking about the, 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 the non-criminals and the non-cartel cartelized immigrants. I'm talking about you know, the kind of mom we saw in that CBS story comes here for a better life. I have more respect for that illegal immigrant than I do Ilan Omar, who came here legally and who uses the service of her power and prestige to make other Americans hate this country. I really do. Is that, a, is that a terrible thing to say? I hope not, but I do. I have more respect for the innocent immigrant to this country, illegal immigrant to this country who wants to come here because she thinks or he thinks it's a good country, if not a great country, if not a better country, than I do for the progressives who came here legally or were born here legally, whose stock in trade is to run us down. I really do. Do I think their politics at the voting booth will be substantially different? I don't know. 
Do I disagree with illegal immigration? Of course I do. You know my record on that. I'm just telling you about who I think has the greater moral claim. That's all. Seth, we'll be right back. Is this the new ACDC? God love those guys. God love them. God love you. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. This is the anniversary uh, date in 1776 in which Thomas Paine published his treatise, Common Sense. Probably something we could all go back and stand to read. I love the opening. The opening is itself a course in political science. Some writers have so confounded society with government as to leave little or no distinction between them, whereas they are not only different but have different origins. Society is produced by our wants and government by our wickedness. The former promotes our happiness positively by uniting our affections, the latter negatively by restraining our vices. The one encourages intercourse, the other creates distinctions. The first a patron, the last a punisher. Society in every state is a blessing, but government, even in its best state, is but a necessary evil. In its worst state, an intolerable one. For when we suffer or are exposed to the same miseries by a government which we might expect in a country without government, our calamity is heightened by reflecting that we furnish the means by which we suffer." Government, like dress, is the badge of lost innocence. The palaces of kings are built on the ruins of the bowers of paradise. Let's think about that for tomorrow, shall we? Let's think about we furnishing the means by which we suffer. Because we do. A little common sense goes a long way. Thomas Paine, go, go read Thomas Paine, and you'll go a long way. Until tomorrow, God bless you. I'm Seth Leapson. Class dismissed.